0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of sight, a dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into...
1: The Twilight Zone.
2: Hello, and welcome to episode 47 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. With me today, I have... uh, Two regulars, one of whom is kind of a special guest. If you've made it to this week and listened to any other episodes on the network, you know that we are at the end of a network-wide crossover series on the Twilight Zone. So with me today, I have regular CFP panelist Leah Henning and regular CHP panelist David Grubbs. Hi, Leah and David. Hello, Hello, hello. Uh, So, since this is a a Network Insider show, we probably don't need to do uh, intense introductions, but let's introduce ourselves anyway for anyone who's new to the show or anyone who doesn't listen across the network. David, you go first.
0: Well, I'm David Grubbs. I teach English at Houston Baptist University, and for what seems like all of my life, I have been. Meeting with Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer early in the morning to talk about stuff. <laughs>
2: and sometimes Danny Anderson, we love you, Danny.
0: Well, but somehow ne- never with me, right? It's it's like we always oh, really? we always switched out. He he was like the alternate me. I think I've recorded one show with Danny, maybe two.
2: Interesting. Thanks, David. Uh, really glad to have you on the CFP today. Leah, tell us about you.
1: Hello, I'm Leah Henning. Um, I'm currently based in Woodbury, Minnesota, um, where I'm teaching and working with vulnerable adults and a lot of other fun stuff like that.
2: Thanks, Leah. <laughs> uh, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am Senior Manager of Audience Development, Public Radio International. Uh, also, one of the original members of the CFP. If you're listening to this, you've probably heard me talk a lot. Uh, as also, as usual for my recording, I am seated next to my two cats, so you might hear some purring or related cat noises uh, during this episode. Um, I already said we are at one end of a network wide crossover on the Twilight Zone. Um, So if you listen to the rest of the network at all, uh, you've probably heard at least one and maybe four uh, other people talk about what the Twilight Zone is, so I probably don't need to do that here. Um, But we, since we are the CFP, are going to talk about um, femininity and beauty and some sort of lady-related topics as we cover the Twilight Zone today. So that's uh, kind of the angle at which we're going at this, but first we're going to talk a little bit about our own history with the Twilight Zone as a program. Um, So did you guys, have you seen the Twilight Zone before you did this episode? Um, If not, what was that like for you? And if yes, talk a little bit about your history with it. David, kick us off.
0: I remember very vaguely having seen maybe a few episodes when I was a child, uh, enough to be scared of the music, <laughs> uh, but also enough for that music to stick in my head so that uh, even even years and years later when something weird would happen, um, you know, I might hum the music as kind of a callback and other people around who recognized it would go, ha 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 that's exactly what's happening. Um so it, it's it's one of those things that I I wasn't necessarily shaped by um fandom for it so much as uh I was in a world that Twilight Zone happened to and it was it was one of the those kind of cultural touchstones. It was years and years later before uh I had any reason to revisit it. And weirdly enough, by that time I'd actually read about a number of these uh kind of important episodes that we're looking at today and uh, other episodes that the network's looking at. And so I'd already kind of encountered them in books as kind of examples of uh, particular kinds of science fiction tropes.
2: Yeah, I think that's probably true of a a lot of um, people's experiences. I like what you said about living in a world where the show had happened to, because it is like a really common um, cultural Touchstone, I think a lot of people um, know it, or um, a lot of people probably now have, have been on the, the ride um, at Disney World too, which has a lot of um, a lot of symbols and figures that are in a lot of famous episodes. Mm-hmm. Leah, what about you?
1: Well, I was really glad that David mentioned humming the theme tune at odd points in life and having people laugh about it, um, because I do that too. Uh, And it's gotten to the point where I've even asked some of my friends who laugh whenever I do that why they laugh. Like, well, what's the music from? And they have no idea what it's from. They just know that it means something weird. Interesting. (laughs) So the context has been completely removed from the Twilight Zone. But I grew up in a strange household that emphasized old TV shows and movies. So I actually grew up watching the twilight zone and a lot of other shows from that time like perry mason of course leave it to beaver but also alfred hitchcock presents um i've only recently started re-watching the twilight zone episodes though and i find that i'm much more able to appreciate the nuances than i did when i was little and i do have to say that I'd forgotten exactly how strange and terrifying these episodes are.
2: They really are. And a lot of them have, um, have really, really excellent social criticism, um, in them too, which I think, um, is, is something that doesn't, as you say, necessarily stick with those of us that are exposed when we were younger. Um, so my, my first exposure to the twilight zone was in the third grade when, um, In a unit on recent United States history, we read the teleplay of The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street in my literature class, and um, which all of you probably know, um, I think somebody's doing Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, isn't that right, David?
0: I think I saw that one on the schedule, yeah.
2: Maybe, um, Maybe City of Man or Sectarian Review, perhaps. Um, not sure which show is doing it, but you, some of you probably have already listened to it. Anyway, it's about a community where um, all the electricity goes out and, and um, they sort of carp at each other and, and there's a lot of scapegoating. Um, lots of people say that the episode is a metaphor for the Red Scare. Uh, so I, um, I read that in class and I went home and told my mom about it. Um, and I think I, as a child, thought that she was going to be upset because the episode was scary, but she just like was super pleased that our teachers exposed us to the Twilight Zone and then made me watch a bunch of episodes. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, my mom's awesome, you guys. And, and so I remember, um, a couple of episodes from that period, like that one. I remember Willoughby, and I remember, um, the one that scared me most as a child is the one, um, with the little boy, and he turns people into stuff, and they're like, "It's good that you did that." Um, mm. That's that's really terrifying. Um, it's got Bill Mooney from Lost in Space. Uh, is the little boy. So I didn't really watch The Twilight Zone again until um, I started dating my husband, and we. Uh, watched I think it's Halloween or New Year's Eve or whatever day it is where it's on some channel for like 24 hours Um, and that is where I watched um, both of the episodes um, on this show for the first time The Hitchhiker and Eye of the Beholder Um, which both have really famous twist endings that we're going to go ahead and spoil in some summaries. So uh, 50 or 60-year-old spoilers uh, ahead, in case you're not familiar with these listeners. Um, So I'm going to summarize Eye of the Beholder quickly, then Leah is going to summarize The Hitchhiker, and we'll go into some in-depth discussion of the episodes themselves. Uh, So Eye of the Beholder as the... um, the aphorism, the proverb that its title is from, suggests is about social beauty standards. Um, we meet this woman, Janet, who is in a hospital and, uh, her face is all wrapped in gauze and, um, they keep saying how hideous she is and that she's had, this is her 11th operation and she can't have any more and, you know, if she is still ugly they're gonna have to send her away. Um, The entire episode, we don't see anyone's face until the very end, and it's revealed that Janet um, basically looks like a 50s movie star. She is conventionally beautiful, and all the people in her society have sort of distorted, like, alien pig faces uh, that look very terrifying to us, but the idea is that they're a conformist society, and um, everybody should look the same, so what they say is beautiful is beautiful, and what they say is ugly is ugly. Uh, Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, Can you tell us about what happens in The Hitchhiker, Leah?
1: Sure. Um, So, the Hitchhiker episode opens with Nan Adams, our Heroin um, at the side of the road after blowing out a tire with a mechanic and a voiceover comes on explaining who she is, that she is a buyer at a store in New York, and she's driving cross country to California. Um, but little does she know that this trip will be one of terror. Um, and as almost as soon as the voiceover is completed, we see a shot of this hitchhiker and the sight of this hitchhiker terrifies Nan so much that she starts almost hallucinating or going insane. And the rest of the episode just follows her as she continues to drive across the country. And this hitchhiker keeps appearing um, in front of her, uh, motioning her to come towards him. Uh, And, The big twist at the end is that she makes a phone call to her mother, and lo and behold, her mother has gone insane because her daughter, Nan, died in a car accident along the side of the road on the way to California. And Nan, void of emotion for the first time in that episode, gets back in the car, and the hitchhiker is in the back of the car. I'd say that's enough of a summary for the hitchhiker. Uh,
2: right. So so we discover <laughs> that he is not a hitchhiker, but in fact the angel of death and he's taking her to die. Right. Um, I believe he says, mm-hmm. you're going my way. And then they drive off. Yeah. So, so, so you've, you've mentioned, Leah, that, that she's a buyer at a department store. So already we have this, like, super 50s kind of femininity going on. Um, t- tell us more about, um, about Nan as a woman. What kind of woman is she, and, and how, um, how does that shape her identity in the episode?
1: Well, Nan Adams' femininity seems to be the only thing that we know about her, if we can even say that much. Like I said, the narrator does give a quick overview of her at the very beginning, so within the first minute of the show, you do have this specific female image given to you. Um, also, in a little bit of a funny twist, her femininity is in her inability to drive competently, since right away, joke. <laughs> since right away she blew out a tire before the episode even begins, and it's actually a joke that comes up again and again throughout the episode. Um, Her clothing is always very flattering and it does emphasize her gender and those 1950s gender roles. Um, When we first meet her, she is flirting with the handsome young mechanic. Uh, And again, her whole occupation as a buyer at a department store in New York, it's very feminine. And Really, it's her looks. Her looks are constantly at the foreground for her identity, her clothing, and her appearance. Just at one point, a character tells her that she looks like a movie star, that he can't believe that he was able to get a ride with this beautiful young woman who looks like a movie star.
2: Is that the sailor?
1: That is Mm -hmm. the sailor.
2: Yeah, we should we should talk about the sailor too, but let's um let's let's finish up Nan first. Um, yeah. Something cool that I don't know if you guys know is that Nan Adams is named Nan. Um, originally in the in the radio play that this episode is based on, it's a a man um who gets picked up by the hitchhiker. His name is Ronald, but uh, Ronald Adams. Nan Adams is Nan Adams because Rod Serling's daughter's name is Nan um so so that's a, a a pretty significant change and and kind of interesting um to to think about in light of um all the ways you've said her femininity is is constructed
1: that is interesting i like i'm just as a side note i wonder why he named a character who is being picked up by the angel of death after his daughter <laughs> um i feel like that's like
2: the 40th weird thing about Rod Serling
1: <laughs> true <laughs> uh, well back to Nan other than her looks and her femininity there isn't much that is there to define her to us we don't know her likes and dislikes or her history or her family we know she has a mother in New York only at the end when she calls her mother And I don't even remember if we're told why she is driving from New York to California. We just know that she's going on that trip.
2: Which is pretty weird in itself, right? Like, women didn't really drive a lot and definitely not by themselves across the country at that point in history.
1: Right. So, like, even that is almost a comment on the female driver thing. Um that a a woman would make such a mistake, almost. Um, But there is something to be said about her femininity through how other people interact with her. And it's always men. There's not a single woman other than Nan in the story that we see. And the look on their faces, these men's faces, when they interact with her, tell us more about her uh her outward appearance and her as a person than anything else um she is beautiful she's gorgeous so at first they do seem to accept her based on her looks but there's always something about her that always seems to put them off so whether it is the seemingly irrational fear she embodies this fear of the hitchhiker or maybe it's the fact that you know she's dead (laughs) she's not supposed to be there. It's really hard to say what is putting these people off, um, off meeting her.
2: Yeah, I've always wondered like what, what the other people see when they see her, like y- you're right that clearly they see her as beautiful. Um, and, and at one point, um, when she, she's like, I don't understand, um, why all this is going on. I'm just a lady. um, yeah, but, like, because she's been in this car accident, do they see her as all messed up? I, that doesn't... Maybe that doesn't matter. And maybe they don't see her because it's, like, a fifth dimension thing. I don't know.
0: Of sight yeah. and sound and so forth.
2: Right. Yes. Very good. Um, David, do you have anything to add about uh, what we're saying about Nan's femininity here?
0: I do think it's very, very interesting that the first thing that you see of her... Is her looking at the mechanic, not the mechanic looking at her.
2: Yes. That um that's that's definitely really interesting. Nan is a, a sexual aggressor um multiple times in this episode.
0: Well, the second time it's really creepy. But the first time, um I actually got kind of a warm sort of a sense off of the off of her interaction with the mechanic it seemed as if it wasn't as if he was kind of you know smarming at her and she was sort of keeping him at the arms at arm's length because the first thing that you see is her looking at him with a smile in her eyes um she's appreciating you know she's appreciating what she sees and he appreciates what she's what he sees and and when they talk to each other they seem to have this kind of Almost, but not quite, overt flirtiness. If that makes sense, I, 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 is is it flirting yet in that first scene?
1: it's, um, it's pretty edge, close. I say.
2: It's it's like, hey, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? Like they're they're recognizing that the other person is attractive and that the other person thinks they are attractive. I think. Okay.
0: Okay. All right. So I I don't know. I I, I get kind of a I, I guess. Uh, my my read on that very first scene is a little more um a little more warm um gives her a little more agency so to speak later on though uh and i and and i say this we uh Katie and the kids and i just got back from uh, a trip out to uh college station which is a couple hours Northwest of Houston and then and then we just we just got back and I, I was really really sleepy on the way back and It made me think of one of the things that struck me when I was watching this episode is is just how sleep-deprived she is um, and the ways that that is kind of peeling away the layers of composure that she very clearly has um, I, I think if we saw her in her day-to-day life, she, she would seem like a very in-control, very put-together person who was confident in herself, confident in the way that she responds to each other. I mean, I see the her being alone as a sign of she, Nan feels like she can handle herself. Um, Nan feels okay. And the the descent into fear over the course of the episode... Um, I, I find even more disturbing because I read her as very competent, very co- together, very uh, fearless in a lot of ways, and uh, this this episode is kind of stripping away those that that sense of of self security, which is um, which makes it e- extra uncomfortable for me. <laughs>
2: Yeah that's a really good point. I mean as as much as she is defined by her physicality as we've said she's not an airhead like she does at the beginning of the episode seem like a competent confident well-rounded person.
1: Mhm. Could we say that perhaps her fear the growing fear throughout the episode would give her her character more stability? Within the story. More than that sense of femininity. Hmm.
2: Say more about that. That sounds interesting. Well.
1: Her femininity is all that we know about. Her. But we see. um, This fear grow. Throughout the course of the episode. So that is really what. We get to know her as. As this very frightened. Although competent woman. Who's just terrified of this hitchhiker who is everywhere.
2: It's true that she does like, she tries to solve her problem a bunch of different times in a bunch of different ways. Like she's not just driving around screaming.
1: Yeah. Right. And she does drive different routes thinking she'll get away from the hitchhiker. Cause she goes on the turnpike thinking there will be no hitchhikers there. And then she goes on back roads. So she is trying to get away from him, but that fear and him just keep following her and really develop her into who she is at the end of the episode. But at the end of the episode, she's completely devoid of emotion. So she's
2: devoid of everything. She's a ghost. Like it's kind of the whole point, right? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Ooh, this is interesting. This took an interesting turn guys. Um okay so before we before we move on a uh, couple other points to hit so we've talked about femininity um there are, are some interesting figures of of masculinity um to uh most notably the hitchhiker himself uh so David tell us about the hitchhiker and what kind of man he is um and and if you could maybe talk about the sailor for a second too just as as kind of masculine juxtaposition uh you can do that as well sure
0: the first time we see the hitchhiker uh it's is it in the mirror i had she seen him before she sees him in the mirror i don't remember noticing him until that first time when when she's getting the her tire changed and she opens up her uh, compact or her purse or whatever that is and looks in the mirror as she's looking at her face and she sees him behind her. I hadn't remembered noticing him up to, the, up to that point.
2: I'm pretty and- sure that's right. Um, I, I used to teach this episode Um a lot a a couple of years in a row I taught visual analysis in composition on or close to Halloween um, and and that's what I would do is teach that episode and students would flip out when she saw him in the mirror so I'm pretty sure that's that's (laughs) the first time that that happens
0: cool well and it's and it's a foreshadowing of the next time that she looks in a mirror and sees him which is in the the final um, the final scene So, one, he's a hitchhiker. He's a guy who's always on the side of the road. Uh, He is white, uh, dark hair, uh, not very tall, kind of a slight figure. Um, He wears sort of a 50s hat. I'm sure there's a name for it. I don't know what that name is. He wears a jacket. He doesn't wear a tie, if I remember correctly. Um... Slacks, shoes. He looks. He looks like an probably an out of work person from that period, who nonetheless wants to present as respectable. Uh, he is shaven, all right, which uh, is an an indication of uh, he's had at least some access to a razor. Now, of course, we find out that he is the incarnation of death, so all of that goes out the window. But if you're just looking at him, he looks like. Someone maybe he's down on his luck. Otherwise, why why, why would he be hitchhiking? But uh, otherwise, he he seems fairly well groomed. The strange thing about him, though, is is the way that he immediately meets your eyes, and he's got this little smile, like he knows a secret, and he might tell you. And his eyes have this knowing look, and he doesn't just stick his thumb out like for a ride. He beckons.
2: It's terrifying. His face, that smile and his eyes, like you, you can't look away from them. And all you want to do is for them not to be staring at you.
0: Yes. Well, which is exactly what happens. As soon as she gets her, her new tire and pulls away from that garage back onto the road, uh, the, the camera sort of pans and there is the hitchhiker and he turns and he looks right at you. He learned, he looks right at the camera. He looks right through the fourth wall and it gives you that smirk um which, which for me was a jump scare all right I, th- th- at that moment i was like Dah! no don't look at me <laughs> don't look at my soul creepy hide- hitchhiker it's sometimes interesting to look at uh these these kinds of episodes and ask what uh what fodder what source material might be going into it um what in what ways might uh the original viewers have expected the story to go what would they what would they have expected the twist to be and this seems to be the setup for the pretty uh the pretty familiar ghost hitchhiker ghost story
2: oh the vanishing hitchhiker yeah
0: yes it looks like the setup for the vanishing hitchhiker except she just keeps not picking him up <laughs> and then at the end, you get the reversal. It's not the vanishing hitchhiker. It's, in fact, the driver was dead the whole time. Um, but, yeah, it's it's that look in his eyes that makes him so creepy. He's not overtly aggressive. Uh, he doesn't look like a threatening figure physically. Uh, it's He's
2: overtly not aggressive, right? She, at one yeah. point, calls him a sad little scarecrow man.
0: Mm-hmm. Which... Which makes her fear that much more um, interesting, I think. Um, if, if he'd been, you know, this, this, you know, giant bear of a man, <laughs> that would be one thing, but he isn't. And it's just the fact that he keeps popping up, and every time he looks that same way, like he was waiting for you. Um, it's, 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 it's incredibly terrifying. Um I would I would not want that experience. <laughs> the sailor. Anything else we want to say about the hitchhiker before we turn to the sailor?
2: Uh no, I I I'm good. I think that you covered, I mean, how how horrifying he is. It really does feel like he's looking into you. hmm
0: So the sailor. Uh, kind of a, a cheery, moon-faced fella. Uh, he he seems to be just sort of out walking. I, I guess he's been thumbing a ride across the country, attempting to get home on leave. Um, and along the way, he stumbles, uh, he stumbles uh, across Nan, and she, uh, out of desperation, offers him a ride. And he initially cannot believe his luck, because, you know, he's just this Navy man on leave and here's an incredibly beautiful girl in the middle of the night offering to drive him to his destination. It, it's, it, you know, it seems, uh, it seems like a, a, like a daydream happening. Um,
2: let's, let's talk about why, right? Like, okay, yeah. Leah, you're a woman and I'm going to make you talk now because David is a man. Um, so it's 19, it's 1950, whatever and you're driving and there's a sailor in his navy outfit on the side of the road. Do you pick him up on purpose? No, you don't. Why not? Absolutely not.
1: Because sailors are wolves,
2: <laughs> right? And you're going to get yourself assaulted or worse, right? So there's this, there's this kind of not get yourself because that is not how sexual assault works. Let's let's walk that back. Um <laughs> <laughs> you know, bad things are going to happen. So so why are we making these sexual assumptions about the sailor? And what does it mean that that's not what happens at all?
1: Well, I, I think we make these assumptions about the sailor because he is very, he does have that air of strong masculinity. When you first meet him, he, uh, enforces that, um, Nan gets gas, which she was in a moment of distress when they meet where she was at a gas station that was closed and the owner was refusing to give her gas. He bangs on the door and makes that happen. Um, he's larger than her. He's bulkier. He ha- he's muscular. Um, and when they first start talking in the vehicle when they're driving, he is almost flirting with her. I say almost because it never gets to that point, because by this time, Nan is a little unhinged. She, her fear is getting way out of hand, and eventually um, he forces her to pull over the car because she's tried to hit the hitchhiker twice, whom he can't see. And uh, he justifiably thinks that she's insane, so he runs away. Um, and instead, Nan is the sexual aggressor, as she grabs him physically and begs him to stay with her.
0: And let's make clear that that's that's not the aggression. It's 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 the when she says, "I like you," and I want you to to stay with me. Um, yes. She, yeah. She makes it explicit that.
2: Doesn't she also touch his leg? Am I making that up? I, think I don't remember.
0: I don't remember a leg touch. I might have blocked it.
2: <laughs> Cuz I remember being like, "Wow, that's super bold."
1: I think you're right, Victoria. I think she does um like grab his knee and his arm as he's going to open the door.
0: And he's completely wigged out at this point. Um everything that he thought was true about this situation is is not. And I kind of pity him at this moment. It's it, he's gone from potential wolf to definite scared puppy.
2: Right. Yeah, you sort of have to empathize with him, right? Because he's completely out of his depth.
0: Yes. I mean, (laughs) you're in the car late at night with a beautiful girl who seems to be wanting to hit a hitchhiker.
2: (laughs) Yeah, like, what would you even do? How do you react to that situation? It's so crazy. Well, and also
1: it's a hitchhiker that isn't there. He doesn't see him.
2: Yep, I would bail, too. Okay, so are we are we good on uh, the hitchhiker and the sailor? I think so. Okay. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the religious references and metaphors in this episode, of which there are many, many, many. Um, I'm not going to talk about all of them. Um, but... Uh, Before we get to the twist, before we learn that the Hitchhiker is, in fact, the Angel of Death, there are many things that have pointed us in that direction. Um, The first is probably once Anne um, has the accident. She is told that she should have been hurt much worse and she must be on the side of the Angels. Um, Of course, she, she is actually on the side of the Angels in that she's crossing over, but we don't know that yet. Um, also something that Leah just mentioned, um, when the, the sailor is knocking and demanding that she be seen by the mechanic, lots of, um, television critics and theorists have noted that this is the parable of the friend at midnight from Luke chapter 11. Um, (laughs) that this is the idea that, um, uh, Christ says which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him friend lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within and say do not trouble me the door is now shut and my children are with me in bed I cannot rise and give to you I say to you though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend yet because of his persistence he will rise and give him as many as he needs Um, and then the passage immediately following is the ask seek knock passage so um this is a a reference to a biblical parable on about the need of another person um which fits the the sailor begging the mechanic uh begging the the gas station person on nan's behalf. Um also I I think it's interesting uh, to think about her progression which we've kind of already talked about from one direction. She gets kind of more scared and unhinged as the episode progresses. Um, I think it's interesting how her progression toward death really only happens at the end of the episode. Um, She doesn't really sort of submit herself to the idea that um that she's dead and and needs to go to the other side um until the end and i guess we don't even really see it because he he asks the question at the end um are are you going my way um and i think guys correct me if i'm wrong he's still looking at us the viewer at that point i think so i think he is
1: like we're making eye contact with him Right. we get the full view view of his face at that point right so but also i think it's still a reflection in a mirror
2: mhm oh that's interesting too um as far as like you know division and and separation from death um i really think that um nan isn't be because she doesn't realize earlier that she's dying and submit herself to it because we don't really see her do that um her kind of death acceptance isn't as much about her as it is about us kind of thinking about how will we be when it's our time to go um Mm. that that this is a kind of broader metaphor about um about the willingness to die the ars moriendi the art of dying well um which is a, a medieval lit term um what do you guys think about that do you think that ann's death is about uh nan's death excuse me is about nan or about us
1: <laughs> that's a tough one um i think you might be right that Anne's now i'm doing it that nan's death isn't about her because again we don't know who she is we never know who she is we just have these little bits and pieces about her past at the very beginning and then this fear that we get to know her by throughout the rest of the episode. So in a way, the fear is what we connect to Mm. and that has to do with us and our perception of the hitchhiker through Nan's eyes. So I think you're right. It's not Nan's death. It's how we see the coming of death.
2: David, do you have anything to add there?
0: I would agree with I would agree with that for 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 the reasons that Leah said, but also because I think frequently in Twilight Zone the the viewpoint character is uh is a kind of viewer proxy. Um is a sure. is a, a a more sympathetic person whose distress um you're meant to uh you're meant to identify with instead of um Instead of just instead of just be the spectator, and and I think she she does work effectively in that way, um, including uh, in in you know keeping in mind when this was made and and all the rest of it. Maybe this is because I'm a man in 2016 watching this again, um, but I I I felt very connected to her through the episode, including in when the sailor got in the car and started to talk about how lucky he felt to be in the car with a movie star or whatever it is that he's saying um i actually kind of felt my throat constrict at that point i'm like no 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 sailor man no sailor man she's in trouble <laughs> this is the wrong time and uh and at that point, it's not it's not necessarily because I know Nan so well and I'm scared for her, but because I've so closely identified with her, um, I think, in, in, in some way. Did, was anyone, did anyone else think about the Emily Dickinson? Because I could not stop for death. He kindly stopped for me.
2: Yes, I have. <laughs> I have taught that poem with that episode before.
0: Okay, cool.
2: <laughs> and, and invariably, some student is like, this is just like the sixth sense. And I'm like, hey, how about you want to reverse that for me?
0: <laughs> True enough.
2: Of course, I, I think it's, there, there are never too many opportunities to say that, obviously, M. Night Shyamalan is a terrible hack. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure this episode is one of the things that he stole from.
0: F- fair enough. The, the Sixth Sense was well executed. I'm not saying anything else about the rest of his <laughs> body of work.
2: <laughs> yeah, you're, you're right about that. But like ev- every time I ever taught this episode, some kid was like, it's just like the Sixth Sense. No.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the other way about.
2: Okay, um, we should probably transition to the next episode here. Uh, So, The Eye of the Beholder is maybe the episode of The Twilight Zone with one of the most famous, if not the most famous, twist endings. Um, The idea that this woman that we, as 20th, 21st century Americans think is conventionally beautiful um, is actually ugly in her society because these people have horrendous, twisted, porcine faces. so I I want to start talking about your first experience of the twist, if you can recall it. Uh, did it scare you? What did you feel about it? And if you were scared, does that mean that uh, the title is true, that beauty is in the eye of the beholder? Leah, you go first.
1: All right, Um, I remember that this episode scared me when I first saw it as an elementary aged kid. Um, the idea of conformity was never really encouraged in the Henning household, so it makes sense why I was frightened from that perspective, and also those masks are terrifying. Um, but this time, knowing what was coming, it it didn't frighten me as much as it made me feel sick to my stomach about the social commentary that it brought up. Um, As an adult, I was able to see the reference to Hitler and Stalin in the figure of the leader on the screens throughout the hospital, and his message of conformity is something that underlies a significant part of our culture that no one really wants to admit to. We all want to be our own person, but we also all want to fit in with each other, and outsiders are always ostracized, whether that's the clique in school or Um, that one person in your field that has those strange ideas that doesn't quite align. Also, of course, the emphasis on beauty always hit me as a woman. So much of what we interact with in our culture is telling us how we should behave, what we should wear, how we should look, all that superficial nonsense. But it's something that we all have to deal with both men and women, although perhaps women especially, that connection between this made-up universe of the Twilight Zone and what we experience every day, that is what truly terrifies and sickens me in this episode.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Um, and and I, I think what's what's interesting about um, what the episode is trying to do is that it's, it's trying to tell us that um that these constructs are just that they're constructs and they're culturally relative and yet because we are so colored by the beauty standards of our own culture i think it's tough when watching the episode to get away from the fact that like as you said these masks are terrified terrifying um i called them twisted earlier they're they're very scary and um and Janet herself, you know, is less threatening to us because we see her um, and the, the guy, I don't even remember his name, the very kind of generic James Dean looking guy um, <laughs> at the end of the episode who takes her away to the, the commune of, of ugly people, um, they, they are non-threatening to us because they fit into our, our cultural expectations of, of what it is to be beautiful. Okay, it's not my turn to talk yet. So, uh, David, (laughs) um, tell us about uh, your experience of The Twist. When did you see this episode first, and uh, was it scary to you?
0: The first time I encountered The Twist was actually in a book, uh, and it was talking about the Twilight Zone generally and its contribution to horror, uh, the horror genre and the still picture that they had associated with their discussion of the Twilight Zone was was the reveal of the doctor and the nurse so that before I even saw the episode I knew what their faces looked like and so for a long time before before I'd ever seen the episode I thought that's kinda corny I mean how do you get a whole episode out of that (laughs) They're like, oh, she's hideous, and then we take the bandages off, and oh look, she's beautiful, normal person, and they're scary pig people. I'm like, you know, I, I in in my head, I'm saying that's that's not a very effective, you know, story. So when I watched it, it was not a it was not about the scariness of of the reveal. It was about how everything else in the story made me rethink what I thought the reveal was, because. I knew nothing about the um, that reference to the kind of totalitarian setting, um, and a, and absolutely none of the uh, psychological distress, relational tension, um, the the back and forth between the doctor and the nurse, as the doctor is is empathetic and the nurse is not.
2: Oh, the nurse is the worst.
0: Um, all of that stuff I did not see coming. And so it was, it was significant. The, the episode for me was significantly different than what I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to be just kind of trite. Ooh, this is a world where ugly is normal and beauty is not. And, and okay, except, except there was so much more going on. If, if, if episode is just reduced to, and they were pig people the whole time, I think a lot gets lost. And it's true, you know, watching it really for the first time uh, was made me rethink how trite I'd thought the observation was going to be. Um, There there was definitely the the way that the woman continues to be distressed when she sees her reflection is frightened when she sees the man that I think is normal, the way they continue those behaviors after what is the twist you expect the big reveal um the way the story continues to play out makes you think about okay what kind of life are they going to have you know is she going to continue thinking of herself as a freak for the rest of her life and so forth and what happens to this doctor the next time he has another patient you know is he going to become more empathetic or not you know it's 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 a whole world that gets made in this episode which is really really interesting.
1: Yeah, it really is because
2: the episode is like it's incredibly slow. Uh-huh. You you get all of this world building um and and you get a lot of stuff um i I wish we could spend more time talking about camera angles because the the two episodes we're talking about um rely really strongly on really interesting um shots and angles like when janet is getting her the bandages taken off of her face uh we are janet we are seeing the room through the gauze on her face um Mm. and and as the as the doctor is cutting um cutting the gauze off as he says he's going to do layer by layer and and does very slowly um we are seeing more and more light uh in the room until their faces are revealed and so i yeah it's it's really it's easy because the twist is so famous to reduce the episode to and then they had terrifying pig faces um, which are terrifying, um, and which <laughs> I am legitimately scared of. Um, I'll be, I'll be honest and say, um, I saw this episode for the first time and was, by some cultural miracle, ignorant of the twist. I was like 21, um, <laughs> and I I saw it for the first time with michael during one of those marathons and uh and i am legitimately scared of the pig people um every time we scroll past netflix um that is the twilight zone cover image it's the image of the doctor and the nurse so i see it like two three times a week whenever we turn the netflix on because we have watched the twilight zone so it's you know in the in the watch list, and I have to like scroll past it really fast because I just don't want to look at it.
1: Aww. Um,
2: which I realize makes me a weenie. A weenie. Uh, I am a grown adult, you guys, but I'm legitimately scared of the pig face people, and uh, so I, I didn't want to watch this episode today. Uh, in preparation for this episode, my husband had to turn it on and say, "You need to prepare," and I was like, "I don't want to look at them. They're bad." <laughs> uh, so. I don't know, I guess that makes me that means that the episode is correct. i I prove its thesis correct uh, because I am culturally conditioned uh, to think that the pig faces are terrible.
0: I don't know that that's entirely f- fair because they they choose a mask that's really beyond the range of the kind of ordinary variation of human facial features. Um, you know, know, go around the world and look at all the different people and no one looks like that. I mean, they are pig people. They're, they're, they're intentionally supposed to be looking like something out of the island of Dr. Moreau. And they, the, the way that their brows set on their faces give them a kind of sort of aggressive slash depressed look. And then they have this mouth that looks like a sneer.
2: Oh, I hate the mouth the most.
0: Right. Well, but but that facial expression—if somebody makes that facial expression to me, even if they've got like you know a normal type human person mouth—it um, says it says aggression and disdain and all those kinds of things. That that sneer means hostility, and and I don't know that that's. I don't know that that necessarily makes me shallow, (laughs) if that makes sense.
2: All right. Well, thanks for being willing to give me more credit than I'm willing to give myself, I guess. Uh, Okay. So other than the big reveal, um, we've we've mentioned a a little bit about the totalitarian state and some other things. But what... um, What other cultural commentary, what other uh, beauty standards commentary exists in the episode, um, and how how does the episode deliver that to us? David, you go first.
0: I have a headcanon for this episode, which, you know, I haven't seen it that many times, but I've already got a headcanon. Did either of you get the impression that the reason why the people in this totalitarian state have this uniform notion of beauty is because their grand leader looks like this and he wants everyone else to
1: as well. I did consider that. Yes. Yeah,
2: that could definitely happen. I mean, Leah mentioned um Hitler earlier, right? We all mm-hmm. Hitler was a quarter Jewish um and yet uh so I I think that yeah, that's it's a definite possibility.
0: So when when you get to the end and beauty in the eye is in the eye of the beholder, it can sound. I mean, you hear that phrase, and I'd always kind of heard it as, "Well, beauty is just subjective." And there's something in me that says, "Well, if it's just subjective, then is it really a thing?" Um, but in this particular case, beauty being in the eye of the beholder becomes the freeing revelation that lets you escape the stifling imposition of of uniformity that the great leader and everyone who willingly works with him um, Puts on you. I mean the possibility that you could look at your face that doesn't conform and find beauty in it That you could look at another face that doesn't conform to the one standard of beauty and 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 with your eye find beauty in it um, becomes a, a political statement in this context so the 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 way that the political is is blended with the with the notion of cultural beauty standards is is interesting and i wish had been developed more but but hey i mean they do a lot in 20 minutes what can i say
1: yeah i'm going to build off david's answer um for me this entire episode has a very Dorian Gray kind of situation where we're forced to see
2: mm.
1: an over the top grotesque portrait almost of ourselves to realize a hidden or not so hidden truth about ourselves in society. Cause it kind of raises those questions about the value we place on outward appearances and, con- and conformity itself, conformity and beauty being hand in hand in this episode. Um, I found myself questioning if I switched places with Janet Tyler, would I have felt differently about being segregated into a community of people that I had been conditioned to pity and despise, even though I had that beauty and conformity with them and not with society at large? Uh, I'd like to think that I'd be the bigger person, but I can't say for certain. Um, but it, it drives that home though. Like what David said, that there is nothing standard or conforming about beauty. Um, the ending narration says something along the lines of now the questions that come to mind, where is this place? And when is it, what kind of world where ugliness is the norm and beauty, the deviation from that norm, end quote. And the answer, which I love is that it doesn't make any difference because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It's using that phrase, as David said, to free, um, to free Janet, to free all of us from that conformity. Um, What is ugly to us is the beautiful norm elsewhere. Likewise, what we perceive as beautiful can be anything but someplace else. And it kind of feels like I'm rambling there, but the general takeaway is that standards so-called are, or something so superficial as beauty are not to be trusted or taken for granted as a universal. They cannot be conformed.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. Um, and I'll, um, I'll just add a little bit onto what you said. Um, I, I do love that the ending narration, um, asks when and where and then says, well, that doesn't matter at all. Um, though I, I did want to think about when the episode was released. Um, it was released, um, on Veterans Day 1960 and, um. What struck me as really interesting watching the episode a few hours ago was um, some of the language that it uses that I didn't expect it to use. Leah, you already mentioned the word segregation, um, which does come up. Um, Janet says that she's going to be segregated into this community of ugly people. I'm not sure how, how widely that word was used, um, culturally to refer to what we now call racial segregation. Um, I, I don't think it was probably an everyday word, but maybe it was. Um, it also uses the, the word disability to refer to her um her face and and the idea that that she is so ugly that she cannot live with um with normal people the word normal is is used um sort of very heavily three or four times um in the episode and i didn't really expect either of those words to to come up um in in 1960 um so I, I think it's it's interesting that it, it could apply to that period. Um this could be about race, it could be about um disability. Um given that the episode first airs on Veterans Day, um, because of the totalitarian um undertones, it could be um sort of pointing at um at the the Germans or the Japanese, right, I think. Um, in in interesting kind of historical ways. Hmm. Um, so I I think that's that could be, um, could be intriguing to think about. Of course, ultimately, it's about our culture and all cultures. Um, but as as David was saying, um, earlier about the vanishing hitchhiker legend, I think it's it uh, is good to think about what the people originally seeing it could have thought too.
0: Mm-hmm. I would have expected a burn victim. Why? Um, because of the degree of bandage, uh, of bandaging. I guess it, that it, makes sense. And given the, the proximity to uh, to World War II uh, and, to, uh, and to Korea, there's there's definitely an awareness of of that kind of severe um, severe whole body wounding. Um, that comes through, um, well, not just to soldiers, but also to civilians during bombardment and things like that. Yeah, I, it, you you would really ha- it it'd be really interesting to get into the headspace of 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 someone who watched it when it first aired to see what do you think is going to happen.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess I never really thought of what kind of injuries her bandaging implied. Um, because I was always caught up with the conversation between the doctor and nurse that mm-hmm. his, what he was saying in defense that no, she has a beauty inside her beyond her physical appearance is treason. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. And but, and the nurse's response is like, Oh, if that were me, I would just kill myself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of a tell that we're in um, a not, uh, not in the in the, the culture that, that we know of and they all smoke oh they're all smoking so much in the hospital
2: there's a lot of smoking and there was one close up of the cigarette package that I thought like it wanted us to look at what it said on it but I could never make it out <laughs> but maybe it was just like because everybody smokes in the late 50s and early 60s I don't know
0: It turns out to be Apple brand
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, I feel like we're maybe getting to kind of a punchy place, so maybe <laughs> we should move on. Um, so now it's time for the third and final segment of every episode of CFP, which is the passing on segment where we give you uh, our recommendations. Leah, what do you have for us today?
1: All right, I have a just one uh, website that I'm going to be suggesting to people. And it is www.rodserling.com. We've basically skated over the interesting creator of Twilight Zone. um, But the truth is he's the mastermind behind these two stories and so many other stories uh, who had this vision for the Twilight Zone and everything that he wanted it to comment on. Um, the website is great because it has interviews with him it has biographical information basically everything you need to know about Rod Serling and his drive to create the Twilight Zone and a lot of his other projects
2: great, thank you Uh, I wish we could have talked more about Rod Serling because he really is a fascinating uh, historical figure so I'm, I'm glad that you recommended that David, what do you got for us?
0: I racked my brains. Um, This might be a little bit out of uh, of left field, so to speak, but there's an essay that gets... uh, I think it gets anthologized pretty frequently and shows up in uh, comp readers. Uh, It's by a guy named uh, Brent Staples. It's uh, probably about 30 years old now. The title is Black Men in Public Space. The essay is... Uh, Written is written from the perspective of uh, of an African-American Brent Staples is an African-American man who writes about people being frightened of him when he would go out on walks at night and uh, really kind of digging down into the ways that he saw his mere presence affecting um, affecting other people even beyond uh, his uh, far beyond his desire to do so. and and the kinds of things that, uh, behaviors that he took on himself in order to uh, attempt to defuse those kinds of tensions. Um, The, the opening, the reason why I thought of this essay is, is that his opening line, uh, his open the opening paragraph has him walking down the street and he happens to fall in behind a young woman uh, and they happen to be going in the same direction and this young woman grows visibly more and more and more nervous until, until she just starts to run, and runs away. And all he was doing was walking behind her, um, not attempting to chase, not 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 yelling. He wasn't gesturing. He was just physically there. And that essay was in the back of my mind uh, as I was watching the hitchhiker episode, and, um, sort of. Making more general the concepts that that staples uh, kind of explores in that episode the ways that um, The possibility of threat or imagined threat um, Shapes uh, Shapes an atmosphere of a of, of fear uh, In a person and it seemed like that that's a lot of what's happening to Nan in that moment um, I mean yes, the hitchhiker is creepy but she begins to be freaked out for particular reasons and not just the fact that she keeps get, seeing the same guy um it's the way that he affects the space around him uh and then the ways that she feels vulnerable based on even the completely non-threatening presence of this man uh that's anyway that's that's what made me think of it
2: Oh, that's a that's a really good essay um it's one i've one i've read before and one that i uh, I think about a lot in a lot of situations. Um, mm-hmm. I I commute to and from work on the bus now and I walk through downtown Minneapolis um, and there have been a lot of situations where I have felt um, threatened and sort of felt vigilant and sometimes I, I have to interrogate myself and, and figure out like where is this coming from? Like is this an actual fear or am I reacting to something that that isn't actually there? Mm-hmm. Thanks uh, Thanks for sharing that essay with us. Uh, I'm going to recommend a young adult tetralogy, um, which is, is often called a trilogy, but it has four books in it, so I'm calling it a tetralogy. <laughs> um, it was originally supposed to be three books, and then he wrote a fourth one. It's uh, Scott Westerfield's Ugly's Tetralogy, um, which is about a 22nd century dystopia in which everyone gets uh everyone becomes pretty gets the pretty surgery when they become 16 um and they get um a kind of pretty conforming face you can only get um a face from this spectrum of faces and the idea is that if everyone is pretty then everyone is the same um except our heroine um a young woman named Tally youngblood eventually learns uh spoilers here that um When they make you pretty, they also do this thing to your brain where um, you become a conformist and you don't want to rebel against the community and all you want to do is party and drink and have a good time. Um, So that that the pretty society is is also um, a society where you don't take risks and you don't do things um, outside the norm. Um, and then eventually Tally um, decides that, that maybe this operation is a bad thing and, and maybe there's sort of more going on in her community that she's aware of. And, um, in the, uh, in the, the first issuing of this tetralogy, um, the, the first book, um, which is, he's called Uglies, um. The cover is a, a direct visual reference to Eye of the Beholder. Um, there's a, a face with a sheet over it that looks um, very much like something that you see in the episode, so I, I thought of that. Mm. So if you're into um, young adult novels or uh, this particular kind of beauty criticism, check out Scott Westerfield's Ugliest Tetralogy. And I think that's going to wrap us up for today. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hello to us, you can do so at Christian Feminist Podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and all of our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Filippic is our press liaison, and Elizabeth Brimner is our intern. For David Grubbs and Leah Henning, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Tune in in about a week when we'll discuss some of the literature of Dorothy Sayers. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.